Coming Home I drove home last weekend with my 31-year-old son. Home is 11 hours northeast of Denver in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, a mostly direct drive on Interstate 80 through Nebraska. My parents moved out of my childhood home after 57 years and into an independent living facility due to the necessity for a more accessible living environment. For the last several years, we've attempted to adapt the house to their changing needs, but it became more and more challenging, especially during winters when ice and snow could make the driveway a barrier to get to them quickly. They deserve to be comfortable, help within reach, 24 hours a day. Their move was preceded by months of emptying rooms, closets, and drawers. My siblings and their spouses packed and carried boxes up and down the old stairs, took them to my parents to decide what was to go with them and what was to be given away. They grouped items into piles for each of us eight kids, things they thought we'd want to keep. Everything else was carried next door to a separate two-story empty commercial building that my parents rented out to various businesses for the past 30 years. The latest renter abruptly stopped paying rent eight months ago and left due to COVID. Our parents' life, our life, is currently spread out in this building and displayed for last-minute grabs before everything will be sold or given away to goodwill. I'd been feeling gentle peer pressure for weeks, an invitation to come home and pick up my pile of stuff so that carpet could be ripped out and the house put up for sale, but more likely torn down for commercial use. My son Keaton and I could not have picked a colder day to make the drive back to Iowa and load up the car. We left Denver at 5 a.m. on Saturday morning, and by the time we rolled into Cedar Rapids, it was dinner time and 12 below. We decided before we left that because of COVID, we would camp out in the now empty house in sleeping bags on air mattresses. After all, the house still had heat, hot water for showers, a stove and refrigerator. It would be more meaningful to say goodbye to the house that way. And by not staying with relatives, no one would worry about spreading COVID. Times have certainly changed. And it seemed that after this past year, nothing is easy anymore. When we first entered the house, we discovered my items stacked in the corner of the dining room. The pile didn't add up to a whole lot, just enough to fill the SUV and block the rear view on the trip back. Items saved for me included some framed certificates and photos, a lamp, and small wooden dresser that was my grandfather's grandmother's that stood behind the French doors in the dining room for years. Also in my box of things was a 1948 high school graduation ring from St. Teresa Academy in Decatur, Illinois that belonged to my uncle. Apparently the ring had been tucked away in a safe place for 70 years and I didn't even know it had existed. It looked brand new, still in the Boyson's jewelry box. My uncle, James Robert Schulte, who they called Bob, was my father's oldest brother. He was killed in the Korean War just a few days after his 21st birthday, six years before I was born. Because we share a birthday, he's always held a special place in my heart, and everyone in the family knows it. I heard such sweet, good things about him through the years, 
and two years ago I was able to meet the Marine who was by his side on the day he was killed. My uncle has been my guardian angel for 62 years, and I've always believed he deserved to be remembered, that he should have gotten to come home to his family, who still loves him so much. I heard an old saying once that we die twice, first when the last breath leaves our body, and again when our name is said for the last time on earth. I am determined that this handsome boy who never expected to die will not die a second time. I put his graduation ring on my finger to bring him home. During the short 48 hours we were in town, Keaton and I visited with a favorite aunt, his 95-year-old grandmother on his father's side, and my parents in their new facility, all with distance and masks on. My parents are still adjusting. Like us all, they had seen few people outside family this past year and now live in a building full of people their own age, some surprising old acquaintances and a few folks they've known for a very long time. We also visited with my other son and his wife and four children. We hadn't seen them in over a year either, and the youngest, twins, are now an adorable age three. We brought their oldest, 11-year-old Kaya, back to the empty house with us the first night for a slumber party, bought him some new tennis shoes on the way. Kaya's old enough to remember the house, and of course, we celebrated with pizza and ice cream. He took full advantage of the wide-open spaces and ran sprints between the dining room and living room in his new shoes, occasional high jumps onto the air mattresses. The house was built in the early 1900s, still has its original windows. Without furniture and people, and with the wind chill 20 below, the house felt cold to its bones, despite the furnace running nonstop. Before we arrived, the heat had been turned up by a loving sibling, yet drafts of cold, unwelcoming air swirled around us in every room. We shivered despite layers of clothing and coats on. I stood over the single kitchen register billowing heat, but the warmth dissipated into thin air, seemingly making no difference at all. Once Kaya settled in, I drug a feather-light air mattress into what used to be my parents' bedroom. Next to it is the only bathroom in the house that amazingly ten people shared for twenty years. I brushed my teeth, and while I brushed, I saw myself at sixteen, kneeling over the old bathtub to wash my waist-long hair under the running faucet while someone pounded on the door to get in. I opened the now-empty vanity drawers and saw them as they were, jammed full of hairbrushes, combs, toothpaste and creams, clippers, Q-tips, and razors. Wet toothbrushes, curling irons, blow dryers, and dippity-doo no longer litters the cramped countertop under the string of green shamrock lights that hung happily above the mirror. Keaton and I bumped into each other in the hallway, and he reminded me of the crazy coat rack that used to stand behind the door. Coats for every season accumulated year after year, one tossed over the top of the other, it growing taller and wider as one. Keaton remembered during visits hiding beneath the heavy coats, silently breathing in the sweet smell of family, hanging all around him, holding him close. We walked to the dining room, the only thing left 
is the beautiful built-in buffet with rows and rows of drawers and a beveled mirror. We stepped onto carpet that was now wavy and loose, like skin on aging knees, my knees. The leaded glass in one of the lower doors was cracked and broken years ago, pieces still missing. The windows above the buffet frame a stately pine tree in the side yard with branches so long and heavy that they always seem to be moving. I can see the nativity set at Christmas, white cotton placed strategically around kneeling shepherds in the manger protecting baby Jesus. I smiled, remembering this room always so full of people, heaping plates of food as they circled the table covered in platters of sloppy joes and ham sandwiches, bowls of chips and that ever-present tiny dish of whole baby sweet pickles. People politely reached in front of each other for plastic forks or a handful of pastel-colored dessert mints that melted in your mouth. Always included at special events was store-bought frosted cakes with their names written on them, celebrating birthdays, graduations, and communions. I realized, shivering, that the laughter, the happy chatter, the warmth and playfulness that was crammed inside this room for more than half a century would sadly never be there in that way again. As I lay on the floor in the dark in my parents' bedroom, I remembered this room on hot, humid summer nights when we first moved in. This room had the only air conditioner that first year, so on especially unbearable nights, we'd be called downstairs to come share the cozy coolness. We lined up in a row on the floor, a messy heap of overlapping pillows, the smallest sibling snuggled away in our parents' bed. Unexpectedly, there I was, sleeping on the bedroom floor again, this time cold and alone. I heard happy laughter in the backyard outside the bedroom window, our father clanging the cowbell at dusk that it's time to come home. We all came running for supper from all corners of the neighborhood, waving and yelling goodbye to neighbor friends. We clambered into the warm kitchen, hit head-on by the comforting aroma of pot roast, boiled potatoes, and carrots. I stared at my parents' empty walk-in closet. The door left ajar. That closet with the single window and roller shade seemed to go on forever in the dark when we were little, curled up inside it, safe and secure. I sometimes escaped to that closet, one of the few places to get away from siblings in chaos, imagined secret hidden doors in the walls behind the clothes. I'd sit among my mother's beautiful shoes. Her Giorgio perfume mingled with my father's starched shirts was deeply comforting to a child in hiding. Through the years, my mother accumulated jewelry that she organized on the shelves. She'd pull out a necklace to wear at one of our school events and in later years took particular delight at picking through the trays of beads and stones with us. Like sisters, she'd lay on the bed with us and rifle through the things. We'd watch as she dramatically pulled out the perfect set of earrings for us to borrow, for whatever special occasion was going on in our lives. On our last morning in the house, Keaton and I went upstairs to the bedrooms where my brothers and sisters and I slept. A piercing sonar was on to deter bats that occasionally get in, and the same curtains from childhood hung on the 100-year-old windows. 
The girls' room had the same brown shag carpet on the floor and paneling on the walls from when the attic was transformed into a bedroom in the 1960s. We walked across the hall to where my brothers slept, looked out the windows toward the front yard. Half a dozen tall pine trees used to block this view, but a terrifying hurricane-like storm tore across Iowa late last summer, pausing tortuously over Cedar Rapids for an unbearable 45 minutes, uprooting and taking most of the old trees with it. I felt exposed, standing there at the windows, looking straight down the hill to the street below, which was never possible before. It wasn't supposed to end like this, and it made me sad that there's nothing left to protect the house from the brunt of future violent storms that are sure to come its way. It was no coincidence that our final visit to the house would be during such bitter cold. Not able to keep us warm, the house is unable to adapt to climate change or my parents' aging lifestyle. It seems it's been nudging my mom and dad toward the front door for years. Due to COVID this past year, the house has been less welcoming, more confining, isolating, and unsafe for my parents to live. The long curved driveway meandering up the hill was just as hard to navigate this winter as always. Thanks to the late summer storm, the lilacs are gone, and so is the gorgeous bridal wreath that bloomed under our bedroom windows every spring. The storm dismantled the pergola piece by piece that my brother and nephew built, especially for our mother, not so many summers ago. Rhubarb no longer grows along the fence, and the fences have either disappeared or fallen down slowly through the years, more noticeable now. The property and the house are simply worn out, and love and time has taken its toll. In the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit, there is a passage that reads, Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off, and your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter to you at all, because once you are real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. I understand. I thank the house for the sweet memories, for listening to our prayers at night, our laughter, hopes, and dreams during the day. I thanked it for its love and care. And then reluctantly, like the little boy in the story with his beloved stuffed rabbit, I let it go. Keaton and I were ready when it was time to drive back to a slightly warmer Denver. We each had emotional moments throughout the weekend, but it turns out that they were more about the people we love so much and had been prevented from seeing than it was about the house itself. I told Keaton that home now is wherever we all are together, no matter where that is. A love like what we've had for each other for so long, through generations in this house, can never die. Remembering will always bring us home. As we walked out of the house to leave for the last time, I took James Robert Schulte's graduation ring off my finger and handed it to Keaton. 
He slipped it on his finger, and we smiled. It was a perfect fit. From my walk-in closet, this is Mary. Stay tuned, and thank you for listening.